Who the Wild Things Are with Ryan McGuire. You gotta listen to your body. Oh my God, maybe, you know, I could get out there. I could do this. Let's take a ride. Find your wild side. Real stories. See with your own eyes. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna have the best time out here. Yeah, I was in tears. I was just like, that's the best, man. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Who the Wild Things Are. This is episode five. It's the third in our series uh, in a row that's containing a season seven guest. Uh, last two weeks, we had Roland, who won, and Callie, who came in second. And this week, we have an awesome contestant, Corey Hawk, who's the GOAT of bow building and traditional archery. Thanks, everyone, for joining. It's going to be a, it's gonna be a good one. There he is. What's up, Ryan? How we doing, man? Great. How are you? Good, good, good. How's the road trip going? Not too bad. Just pulled over real quick to get some fuel. And uh, I apologize to everybody in advance for the uh, video quality. But hopefully the audio works all right. No, that's all right, man. That's all right. I just saw uh, I saw your story about uh, how pissed you were at people driving slow in the fast lane. I was dying. Yeah. I'm a pretty calm guy all around, but uh, the one thing that just gets me in a maddening <laughs> rage is people driving in the, in the uh, passing lane, like five under the speed limit. Yeah, it's brutal, man, especially when you're going really far across country and you're trying to make good time, just getting crushed. Yeah, yeah, big yeah. pet peeve, but uh, keep calm, keep calm, breathing deep. That's all right, yeah, do some breathing exercises. <laughs> yeah, I, can, uh, I can't say I, I relate because... So since I got Lady May, which is like six months ago, we drive all the way to the right at all times. It's like just automatic slow lane. There's no, there's nothing else because my car doesn't go very fast. So it's not uncommon for us to be doing like 40 on the freeway because we're in the mountains, right? So it's like yeah. all uphill and I'm in a 1993 truck with a camper and it's just, we're not moving very fast, but I like seeing the world at that speed. Yeah, it gives you a chance to look around and soak it in a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So tell me, what's this uh, this thing you're going to again? You're, it sounds just like an overall like brawlic competition to me. Like it's bow building or bow shooting, and then lifting and obstacle courses. And yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure what they've got going on. It's just kind of like a winter survival outdoor training course. Uh, I've been invited to attend the Winter Strong in South Carolina, hosted by Sorenex. So. Oh. Headed down there for the weekend, hang out, meet some new people, do some primitive skills, do some archery. Yeah, nice. just have a good time. Sweet. How did you – so obviously the, the archery thing is, is what you're doing full-time. How did you get into, like, the other primitive skills outside of traditional archery? I mean, it was it's partially just curiosity and partially being raised up in a family of outdoorsmen. Uh, I had, you know, uncles and grandparents and great uncles that would take us out in the woods and teach us about wild edibles and just trapping and identifying, you know, plants and just animal behavior and tracking and stuff like that. So it, it's kind of in my blood, but uh, I've definitely got a deep passion for it and a deep curiosity for it. So I read a lot of books. I, I do a lot of practical application, spend a lot of time in the woods. So just an accumulation, I guess, over a lifetime. Nice. I'm, I'm curious. So Callie was mentioning that she had a normal upbringing, right? And she just gravitated to that sort of outdoors lifestyle. Did, 
the cousins and the maybe brothers and sisters that you grew up with, did they all kind of stay on that path uh, of like living an outdoors lifestyle or, or did they kind of drop it as they got older? I think it really just depended on which professional endeavors they went into. I think everybody's still, you know, everybody that I can think of in my family is still into the hunting and the fishing and just being outdoors and hiking. But uh, there was there were really only a handful of us that kind of took it to the extremes. Uh, my little brother's pretty into that type of stuff. He kind of makes some of his own weaponry and spends a lot of time in the woods. So he's nice. big into he's big into fishing and trapping and you know like hunting crustaceans in the water and stuff so <laughs> it, yeah. it really it really varies not everybody kept it but uh it's it's around in different yeah, degrees awesome. yeah that's that's sweet that you kind of you got a good taste of it when you were young that's a that's probably something that is less common now than it used to be right those are like the skills you learned growing up probably 40 or 50 years ago and i think less often now that's something that uh, a parent thinks to give to their kids they're probably like work hard in school do your chores and less often are they thinking about understand weather patterns understand trees understand wild edibles and things like that i know it's it's kind of a shame because it's you know it's kind of a it's a beautiful process just to get the kids out there into the woods and and see the the magic in their eyes you know we try to do it with uh, my, my brother's younger kids and uh, my sister's younger kids just get them out there and yeah i don't know put them in the bush let them see the different plants and animals and stuff and it's it's pretty cool kids are kind of they kind of have a natural affinity for it so it's it's fun to watch and it's a shame that it's not more common these days yeah and i also noticed that uh kids are able to i think because they have less exposure oftentimes they have a heightened sense for certain irregularities. So they'll notice things that adult, adults wouldn't notice, right? Like certain characteristics on plants that maybe adults have just kind of shrugged off or seen too many times. Like kids will point yeah. out really small details that, that adults would never notice. Yeah, it seems like they're more open and curious about it. And we've kind of just become desensitized to it to where we, you know, you don't notice 98% of your environment. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, that's it. It's kind of like a survival, uh, it's a survival adaptation for us because we've got to deal with traffic and jobs and people and, you know, kids don't have to worry about any of that stuff. So they've got a lot of spare uh, brain cells left for the magic of the world. That's right. Yeah, that's right. For sure. Yeah, kids are kids are something else. I've seen uh, a lot of different folks. Um, there's a big homeschooling population out here in the mountains and they do different trips, um, which I think is really cool. So there's definitely some people refocusing on like the finer skills of the outdoors. So that's always, uh, it's a breath of fresh air to see because kind of where I grew up and, and came from, there was a lot of woodsy stuff. I was a Creek kid, but I didn't really have a lot of mentorship or, you know, people showing me those skills. Yeah, I think access to the environment's a big one too. Like you said, you've, you've got access to the environments and not everybody has that, so. Yeah, I think that definitely helps being like right now we're in the Rockies. So the uh, the kids here have a special opportunity, right? Because there's a lot of vast outdoors and a lot of things to see uh, many months of the year. So they've got a great For sure. So uh, let's touch base on a, on a loan. Um, uh, one thing that I'm really curious about is kind of how you got into it. Because for me, like 
when I see, um, you know, your posts and just from our conversations, you seem like a guy that's kind of minimalist and, and simple in your endeavors and you kind of are focused on certain things and, and, and pretty, uh, pretty successful in those. And then alone comes into the picture. Was that something that you had sought out and worked for for a long time or did it just kind of pop up? Uh, it more just kind of popped up. I was I was a fan of the show, you know, for years. I, I watched it and I didn't really think about applying or anything. And it was just, I mean, it's, it seemed like a cool idea to me. I was open-minded to it. And then uh, just got reached out to by a casting agent, actually, um, and was asked to submit an application and somehow got selected, made it to the top 20, went to the uh, selection camp in New York where you go for a few days to, you know, prove your skills in front of basically a panel of experts and then they eliminate 10 and keep 10 mm. and I made it, I guess. So next That's thing awesome. I know, I'm on a next thing I knew I was on a plane to the uh, Northwest territories. How much time did you have between like you made the 10 and you're going to the Arctic? It's a pretty, it's a pretty drug out process. Really. I think the whole, the entire alone casting process is probably close to a year between just, you know, submitting footage you know submitting an application and then you wait and then you submit footage and then you wait and then you go to selection camp and you wait some more and there's interviews in between and it's a it's a pretty lengthy process so mm -hmm. i would say from the time i first spoke to someone from casting to the time we headed up on planes was you know nine ten months maybe a little longer did you ever get there and you were like, saw some of like the legends, especially I'm thinking like schedule or schedule so season seven, it's just like packed with like legends of survival. I know like if I got in that room, I'd be like, dang, these people are legit. Like these are some legit folks. Like, I don't know if I can, if I can take it, you know? You mean uh, when we were all, when we were all together, all in one yeah, place? Like, it's like uh, like an NBA all-star lineup of survivalists. Like, you're all in like a room <laughs> yeah. and you're dang like that's the lebron of like bushcraft like i mean yeah we definitely uh we definitely looked up to each other and everybody had strong points and, and areas where they needed improvement and you know we were we all sort of just became friends very quickly and and the vibe of the whole group was good and and uh yeah we just formed bonds and uh helped each other out and it was a great experience so i don't think any of us were like starstruck by each other by any means but uh yeah, it was just a strong team, man. We we were uh, we were peers out there, and and we respected each other, and understood that anyone in that group could win, and that everyone in the group was worthy of it. And that's just what it was. It wasn't really, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like it would be hard if you were in that room to pick like a favorite or a front runner. Like when I look at that lineup, I'm like, if you did it over again, I'd have no idea how how the dice would roll another time, you know, different circumstances. Yeah. You guys, you know, just with uh, different circumstances could could make it 100 days. For sure. It's, yeah, uh, I was uh, I was worried. I was worried about some of the people that came from warmer climates, you know, who hadn't been exposed to extreme temperatures, and then they end up being the ones that lasted a really long time. So it's yeah. anybody's game. It's anybody's game out there. There are a lot of factors that come into play. So it's it's yeah. kind of silly to it's kind of silly to look at the group and and try to make your predictions right yeah i remember callie last week saying that uh that was the coldest weather she'd ever been in and so you know look at her she kicked ass it was like yeah 
It was like she had lived there her whole life. Yeah. Yeah, Callie's Callie's something else, man. She's a badass. Yeah, she's that's a, she's that's a tough she's a tough chick. Kylan too, man. They they yeah. represented. Yeah, they did for sure. Yeah, I thought uh like just watching as a viewer, I was like, dang, there's they're gonna do it. One of them's gonna do it. It was cool this year because you guys weren't competing. Or I don't know, this year, this season, uh, because it wasn't one v one v one, right? It was a hundred days. So if yeah. if you if you admitted a hundred days as well, would you enroll in both win a million or do you split a million? You split it however many ways. So if three uh -huh. people make it, you know, it's three hundred thirty three apiece. Two make it five hundred apiece. Yeah, it was a million dollars total pot. Um, I don't know if, how many people know that, but now you do. Yeah, yeah it would have been, it, it it been makes, split. It makes sense though, right? It's like because what if you have ten people? <laughs> what if you have ten people make it? <laughs> they kind of probably no more loan show. Right. <laughs> yeah, they. I don't know. I don't know what would happen. I think they start like putting booby traps out there or something to try to get us all to fall out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Speak, okay, speaking of booby traps, let's uh, let's talk about that. What happened with the knee, man? It was like everything was going great, and then all of a sudden, you just have like a softball on the back of your leg. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was kind of. It, they kind of made it look fast and furious in the in the footage, which I understand that there's limitations to the to the editing of a show. You know, you're filming you're filming a minimum of 80 hours of footage per week while you're yeah. out there. Or no, I mean, sorry, 40 hours of footage per week. So in two weeks, I had somewhere between, you know, 80 to 100 hours of footage, and they've got to condense that down into basically a single episode for me, just a few short clips. So it looked a little bit more fast and furious than it was. Um, I, I injured my knee uh, in the first couple of days while I was building my shelter. I uh, I had very few large diameter trees in my area most of them were about the size of like my wrist or forearm and then every other tree you know every once in a while you'd stumble across a tree that was maybe eight inches in diameter so i was walking far and wide to find these larger diameter trees to make my bed frame so that it'd be elevated up off the cold ground so it'd be nice and thick and sturdy kind of like the base of my whole shelter where the floor was and where the bed frame was and i was a ways away from my shelter cutting down these bigger trees and just kind of like humping them back to the shelter, you know, and had one on my shoulder and the terrain out there is just rife with invisible holes and uh, like sinkholes into the swamp or sinkholes into rocky uh, crevices. So it, they just come out of nowhere and the moss covers them so you can't see them. And I just fell wrong. I, I just stepped into a hole wrong without a lot of weight on my shoulders and felt a pop in my knee, really didn't think anything of it. I mean, I felt the snap and I, I thought, okay, that's probably not good, but it really didn't hurt that bad. So I just walked it off, kind of carried on for a few more days with a light heart. And then uh, probably two to three days after the slip is when the pressure really started to build up and the back of the knee started to fill with fluid. And uh, it, it started to deteriorate pretty rapidly after that. I stretched it out for another, you know, nine days or so after the fall, but uh, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was getting fevers in my sleep, and uh, I, I just had this hot, throbbing feeling in my leg. It was to the point where it was so swollen that if I bumped it with the other knee while I was asleep, it'd wake me right up out of a dead sleep. And I was I was sleeping on top of my sleeping bag because it was making me sweat through the night. So I'm like, I I got to pull the plug. I can't uh, I can't risk getting you know septic shock or or septicemia rather.
septic arthritis is what happens when you have a bursa sac that bursts, you know? So yeah, that gets that, really a, dangerous in that environment too. For sure. Really dangerous very quickly. It'll, it'll poison your blood pretty quickly and uh, help is, is quite a ways away. The medical teams, you know, 45 minutes away, even in the emergency. So it just, it just isn't worth it. I've got yeah, the, especially in that cold too, where your body's constantly in fight or flight mode. It's like everything is harder. Definitely. Yeah, I've got a very active lifestyle back home too. I love to, uh, you know, hike and lift weights and run and stuff like that. And the idea of uh, maybe permanently damaging my leg for the rest of forever for a million bucks just didn't add up. Not for a TV show. It was a great yeah. experience. I'm very disappointed that it had to go down the way it did, but uh, you got to do what you got to do. Do you still you still like wake up or like have dreams of like being out there, or, like think about it on a regular basis? Like fuck that knee. Like I should have some like just wish it would have gone different in some kind of way. I mean, it, it's been a while. The you know we've uh, we've been done and been back and I think the show's even the last episode of the show aired almost a year ago now so it's uh, it comes up every once in a while where I just think like ah fuck I I messed up that opportunity you know but uh, it is what it is it's it's something that's out of my control and I've had a yeah. lot of time to make mental peace with it and it doesn't really bother me that much anymore yeah, on to the next good. opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's the right way to handle it. It's like, ah, that sucks. Like, you know, it's a unfortunate circumstance, but like at the end of the day, step in a hole, like that's the thing about a loan is it can be over so quick, right? It can be over, you know, you see the other people like chopping wood a little bit irresponsible with their sharps and they, you know, catch a tendon on their thumb and it's like yeah. everything was going great, but it's over. There is no coming back from that especially in a harsh environment where, you know, bacteria is going to get in there. It's going to be a life-threatening injury really quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, unpredict it's unpredictable up there, man. You just, you got to roll with the punches. You got to improvise. And uh, if you get taken out, you get taken out. It just is what it is. I, yeah. uh, I do believe that there's a chosen one in that show. And uh, anybody else that, that isn't uh, the chosen one to win is going to, get exactly the lessons that they need. You know, nature is going to take you up there and beat you up a little bit and humble you. And then it's going to send you home. And that's, yeah, that's just, a good way to look at it. That's just how it is. That's a good way to look at it. I like that. It's like one person is meant to win and then the rest of it, like you'll get something else out of it. And I think that's true. I think like everyone else that I've talked to from uh, various seasons has gotten something extremely important out of it. I think it's like any other sort of deep intentional journey. You know, you, you get the exact lessons that you were supposed to learn and everybody gets lessons that are tailored to them. And for me, I've, uh, I've had kind of a crazy life of doing crazy stuff and I've never been hurt badly and kind of had this 10 foot tall and bulletproof mentality. And it, it was nice to be, to be humbled and to realize that I'm, I'm just made up of soft tissue like everybody else and <laughs> shit and shit happens, you know what I mean? So I you got the lesson like that I was supposed of, uh, You don't look like you're made out of that soft tissue. When I see you, I'm like, that guy doesn't look that soft. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. <laughs> uh, I Yeah, I needed to be humbled up there, and that's exactly what happened. So, 
There you go, man. No, I uh, I was watching your YouTube thing, and they got you, like, doing dips on logs and, like, flipping tires. I was like, dang, you got, like, the most badass intro of, like, all, all <laughs> the dudes on the show. Everyone else is, like, spending time with their dog and their sisters, and you're like, I don't, you know, have a wife. I don't have kids. I just, like, do push-ups and, like, <laughs> look <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, it was just... I mean, that was at that time my life. So it is, yeah, that's what they captured it just. <laughs> <laughs> so what, they just roll in your house like with some cameras and they're like, hey, like do what you do. And you just, just go outside and show them what it is. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much that's we, uh, I actually don't remember everything that was on my, my casting footage. I can't remember if we, you know, built bows or whatever, but they, they saw the bow shop and then uh, we shot arrow, we shot bows, obviously. They, they get some footage of you packing up the gear. And I was, you know, there was a lot of talk about how I was big into the fitness and how I wanted to, you know, come into the competition strong. So they wanted to film, you know, my, I got a backyard gym that has like uh, pull-up bars and stuff like that. And I got some logs back there and some tires back there. So course they wanted to film the uh the logs and the tires and that ends up being what goes on the footage no dude that's honestly that's like my my uh my favorite way too just like just getting outside and like picking up heavy shit and putting it down it's no better feeling like working out like working out gyms all right but like for me if i can be outside just like throw some rocks around and, and some logs like that's the way to go same yeah builds builds a real world fitness you know functional fitness but uh I, I enjoy the gym in the winter time because we have pretty brutal winters here in southeast nebraska i mean oftentimes yeah. negative temperatures especially through january and february and deep snow so kind of hard to flip a tire in you know 12 13 inches of snow so i'll do the gym thing throughout the uh, winter and then as soon as it's warm enough to to be outside without snow on the ground i'm right back into the outdoor gym right yeah that's uh kind of my mentality it's like for as long as you can bear it but once it gets to be like miserable you got to kind of you got to switch to indoors because you don't want to start hating it right it's like you get to the yeah. point where you're hating it and then you're just like what's what's the point and uh, you get to the point where your hands are freezing to the uh to the metal pull up and dip bars and it's just it's too much yeah absolutely your hands are all cracked from like the the dry cold and it's nasty yeah so alone kind of thing you get a dealt hand bad luck uh you get back and then it seems to me i mean obviously the timing's a little bit different but like following your story it seems like you went right back and just went back to the shop and started kicking ass on bows yeah the the recovery period was was pretty brutal it took uh it took a solid you know nine ten months maybe a little longer to get my knee back to to where i felt like it was close to 100 percent. so recovery was kind of long but i was definitely spending a lot of time in the bow shop there's a bit of a social media blackout period once you get back from the show obviously they have to protect you know the cast information from getting out and they have to protect the results from getting out so there's a social media blackout period where i just focused on building bows and uh, recovering my knee for probably four or five months did you have like one of them little scooter things where like you're like scooting around the shop and like, one <laughs> no. on the tillering tree and like scraping bows like scoot I, I don't know that's what comes to my head is like you and a little leg scooter 
Nah, man. No, I just walked it. Just walked it off. Just, you just I, walked around? Yeah, I just walked around. I just, uh, I mean, certain days were worse than others, but uh, I, yeah, I believe in exercise therapy and I try not to, you know, I was trying to avoid surgery. So I don't really believe in uh, laying around and, and letting it heal. I, I'd rather get the blood moving and it just makes it feel better for me. So, yeah, good I was right back to work. From, uh, good question from Ben right here. He's, he's asking, and this is a question I have too, just to hear everyone's answers. Uh, is, is your approach to the cold just, you know, suck it up? Or do you have specific nope. techniques that you rely on for being in the cold? I mean, I don't really go for the suck it up mentality. I've kind of over the last two or three years really gotten big into this whole Wim Hof breathing stuff. Uh, I discovered Wim Hof a few years ago and his research about cold exposure and uh, cold training and the different health benefits that can come from extreme cold exposure and, and cold showers and laying in the snow and things like that. So it really changed my relationship with the cold. And I, I still try to expose myself to extreme temperatures with, with minimal clothing on a regular basis. And I like to go outside when there's snow on the ground and meditate or, or lay in the snow in my underwear and just try to form, you know, a respect for the cold, but also an understanding that as long as I can control my breathing, uh, the body can do some pretty amazing things as far as keeping myself warm and keeping myself centered in extreme temperatures. Yeah. And I know we've, you know, kind of connected on the, the Wim Hof stuff before, and I've been doing it since uh, 2018, I think. And it, it is interesting, like your body's knack for homeostasis, as long as yeah. all of your other things are taken care of, all of like the basic things like nutrients and, uh, and, and certain other things are taken care of, then your body will really go towards homeostasis almost at any point given that you remain calm and, and work on that breath. Yeah, it's uh, people look at you like you're crazy when it's going down, but they, I mean, if you can keep that breath under control, it's it's pretty mind blowing. I mean, you can lay completely covered in snow or in, you know, freezing cold water and, and you just get like this, this warm, numb feeling all throughout your body. And as long as you can get that breathing under control, stop yourself from hyperventilating. It's so like you said, you just sort of reach this homeostasis, this this hypercharged, like hyper oxygenated state where you could sort of get high on oxygen and it kind of just amps your body up full of energy and it keeps you warm. It's the craziest thing. Yeah, it is really bizarre. And I've and I feel like I've also kind of touched the limits. Like so definitely anybody can take advantage, and that's Wim Hof's genius, is that He's not a superhero. Everyone can do what he's doing. But uh, I think there are limits to it, especially when malnourished, right? So, or certain points of what they say exposure. So I know for me, like this year, I've been doing snow running and walking barefoot. And I started to get a little bit of frost nip, I believe. Um, it's just, I just, I started getting tingly in my feet, you know, when I was laying in bed warm. And like, I had to listen to those signs because I, I was pushing yeah. myself more than I had. So that there's definitely limits. It's not like, it's not like a fix all for everything. And I know like Callie being malnourished when she had the toe with frostbite, like full blown, there are certain times where it gets, gets kind of dangerous. For sure. 
Yeah, you need uh, you need calories for your body to heal, and you just like you said, you just got to listen to your you got to listen to your body. If you're out there and you you've, your feet have gone completely numb and you know you, you you're having pains and things like that, that's you just got to be smart about it. There's things like cold water blackout. I mean, our our water, our tap water in uh, Nebraska in the wintertime gets cold enough straight out of the shower head to cause cold water blackout. So I try to only have my head under the water, you know, until, I mean, you can have your head under this uh, tap water that's coming out this time of year and just get a searing headache in a matter of seconds. So you just got to listen to your body. Yeah, for sure. But all in all, man, the, the Wim Hof stuff did it for me. Um, it did a lot of crazy things for me. I know like meditating the shower and, and anything really that's like connected to water has been a big thing with me. So like being in streams, lakes, all of that mixed with like the breathing techniques, you know, I feel like it lets you tap into somewhere that you really haven't been before, you know, like you're trying to, it's not like a, a weightlifting push or like a running push. It's like a different kind of, a different kind of pushing your body. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Yeah. Mental toughness and resilience. Yeah. Yeah, mental toughness, I guess, would be would be the best word for it. But it's like a matter of staying super calm, and it has nothing to do with like exerting yourself. Yeah, definitely. That guy's awesome. I, I think he's a super funny like personality too. I've I've put like tags of him like in the Who the Wild Things Are because I was like, we need to get Wim on the show. Like, get this guy on here. Let's see what he has to say. And, uh, <laughs> And just let it roll. So uh, post uh, post alone, you get the knee recovery, and now you're building bows. What's uh, what's going on now? You're doing the bow building classes. What else is up with you? Obviously, you're going to this brolic competition where you shoot bows and stuff. But back at organic archery, what's uh, what's the status? I uh, I'm really focused on classes this year. Um, that's, that's a big change to the, the structure of organic archery as people have been asking me for years to do classes and just with custom orders and everything, which is what I was focused on for the first two years of the business. It, uh, it just drained me. It drained me out. I mean, you're always, it's a, with custom orders coming in all the time. It's, uh, it's very difficult to keep up with seasoned wood. You're constantly cutting trees to try to keep a revolving door of fresh wood coming in as seeds are getting as staves are getting seasoned and you're using them up, and uh, you're always having to use sub like you're always having to use staves that you really don't want to work with that are you know mm -hmm. extra challenging because you've just got to work with what you have seasoned and on hand. So for sure, yeah, lots of character and uh, lots of challenges that could have otherwise been avoided if you were just you know selecting the staves that you wanted to work. So just to free it. The only way that I was, it would even be possible for me to free up time to do the bow building classes was to just stop doing custom orders completely. So I'm doing one class a month for the first five months of the year, just to see how it goes. So we've got, I've got the class schedule posted up until June, I think. I'll have to look at my website. I'm not even sure, but I think I've got class schedules posted up until June. We'll see how it goes. We'll see where I can improve. We'll see if it's something I want to keep doing. And uh, in the meantime, I'll still be building, I'll still be building bows, arrows, and quivers as often as I'm able, and just selling them as kind of a one, as kind of one-off pieces, you know, on a first-come, first-served basis. I'm trying to focus on bows that are accessible to everybody. They'll all be within, you know, like 45 to 
65 pounds draw, all of them will be able to accommodate at least a 28 inch draw. And then every once in a while, you know, I'll throw in maybe a heavyweight bow or maybe I'll throw in a bow that can accommodate, you know, a 30 or 31 inch draw and uh, just try to make them accessible to a wider audience. And uh, yeah, just sell them as I make them. That way I'm allowed, that way I'm allowed to work staves that I want to work. And I, I just really think it'll, I'll be able to take more time too. I won't be pressed by long order lists and, and uh, pressing deadlines. I'll be able to really push the performance of these bows, really push the attention to detail uh, to the maximum. So that's the goal so these, anyway. So now that you're making less, are they going to be kind of more refined art pieces with a slightly higher price point because of the added attention to detail? I don't think they're going to be, I mean, I still, even when I was doing large production, I, I gave my, I gave every bow that came out of the shop my, my all, which was kind of right. why I was, I was burning myself out because I sort yeah. of have this, I sort of have this uh, tendency to be a little bit of a perfectionist, and and when you're doing that with dozens and dozens of bows, it can really wear you down. So, I mean, I, I really don't feel like I, I have the ability to refine them anymore. Um, uh, than they already were, but uh, I'm definitely going to start pushing the performance a little bit, kind of trying some some modified designs, and uh, I'll also be able to take more time to work like maybe some really unique looking staves with uh, some crazy looking character, and you know I'll, I'll base the prices kind of off what each unique piece looks like. It'll be based partly off of tree species and availability, like obviously Osage Orange is the king of bow woods or whatever, so. And, and it's more difficult to come by. So Osage orange bows will always be more expensive than whitewood bows, but maybe I'll be putting out a whitewood bow every once in a while that has branches on it or crazy character. And, and I'll be able to kind of price those as unique pieces. Yeah. I'm trying to, they're still trying to keep them affordable for everybody, but uh, there'll definitely be a little bit of a more varying price structure. Whereas before it was all um, a flat rate based on tree species. Right, yeah. It was like Osage is this base price and then whatever you want in terms of modifications or more or less. So yep. for the pieces you're going to do now, are you going to mess with you at all? I feel like I know it's a, probably a question you get at all, like all the time is when are you going to start working you? But yeah, I feel like if I'm only going to do a couple bows, maybe a month or every three months, like maybe doing a couple U bows would be sick just because obviously it's not as available. Yeah, one of the biggest problems uh, with you is obviously it doesn't grow in my region. And they're also- Dude, the let's boat. go up to Washington, we'll get some. <laughs> I, <laughs> we'll wouldn't even know, I wouldn't even know where to find it. We just have to go hike up into the mountains and look. That's right, but, uh, that's where it starts. I'm, I'm down. But uh, <laughs> usually the bowyers that you know take the time to go out into the remote environments to get the U, they, they're kind of prized pieces. And uh, if you buy the staves, especially if you buy a clean PCU, it could run you a couple hundred bucks uh, just for the stave alone. And uh, <laughs> the the bowyers that have access to really clean wood, they kind of it's kind of coveted, and uh, that's their money making wood. So I don't know. I'm torn, man. Like I really kind of have this. Uh, I guess maybe it's just a inner desire to use locally harvested and sustainably harvested woods. Mm. So I, I, there's there's always people who are giving me flack for cutting down trees and stuff, but what they don't realize is that I'm working uh, 
I'm working deals with local farmers who are about to like bulldoze large sections of land, or there are also um, deforestation projects locally where these companies are going in and clearing out, you know, they're going into the park services and clearing out massive swaths of invasive species or non-native species rather to try to preserve the oak and walnut forests that are native to our area. So they'll go in with, you know, a team of loggers and just take out all of the hackberries and locusts and, and all that stuff. So Those if I can great get eight white wood bows, like hackberry yeah. and locusts right there, you can make that stuff for days. And hedge too. I mean, Osage orange, it just, it just so happens that the, the trees that the farmers are pushing them with bulldozers or, or the loggers are going into, or I mean, the deforestation projects are going in to clear out already uh, that are already going to be killed are the best bow woods. So why it just doesn't make sense for me not to go in there and try to clear out some ahead of the teams or ahead of the bulldozers to, you know, give these trees at least a, a dignified second chance instead of just being pushed into a burn pile and burned in a few years. Hell yeah. That, I feel like that's a great mission. I, I had no idea it works that way. I just kind of figured that it was uh referral sources and people called you up like, Hey, do you want this tree kind of thing? I didn't realize it was uh large scale operations, but I feel like, so in that, in that instance, they call you up and they, or you get a tip, right. And say, we're yeah. about to go clear out this hackberry and there's 10 or 15 trees, you go and just like chop them down and then haul them back? Yeah, it's uh, so it's all based on tips. Like someone, maybe someone will reach out to me and be like, hey, there's this farmer locally who's about to push in this entire forest for monocropping operations. So if you, you know, if you reach out to them, maybe there's a chance you could run in there and get some trees. So I'll figure out the farmer's contact information, hit them up. And then I say like, hey, I, this is what I do for a living. Uh, I've heard that you guys are about to push in this section of forest and uh, I'm willing to pay you for your trees if you let me come in there ahead of the dozers and, and cut some of this stuff out. Or if like there's a, a, a deforestation project for the city or for a local park and I catch wind of it in the newspaper or something, I'll call somebody up and be like, Hey, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll throw you guys a little side cash. If you let me come in there ahead of you and cut these trees out. So it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, they're going to cut them anyway. I'm giving them some, uh, some beer money for the weekend to right. go in there and cut a few trees. And, uh, yeah, I try to, I, I really can't, I really don't have the equipment to process like more than about two trees a day. So this is my cutting season right now in the winter when the sap content's really low. So I'm trying to get out, you know, once a week, once every two weeks for a good cutting day. And uh, if I do that throughout the winter, I'm stocked up for one to two years. So you're chainsawing them down, putting them on a trailer, and then you split them by hand in the stays? I split them and process them right out there in the forest. It just makes oh, them easier to transport. Ah. Yep. I bring all my equipment with me, uh, hammer and wedges and chainsaws. And I just, so you're yeah. wedging everything by hand. For sure. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's down and dirty. That's probably where you're getting your workout from the, the grip store. <laughs> they're just knocking a wedge for eight hours. Yeah, man. Cutting days are, they're brutal. They're, they're, pretty, yeah. they're pretty hard on you. That's a lot of work, man. That's a lot of work. Especially on a, on a hard bow wood, right? It's not just like falling apart for you. You got to work that no. thing out. You, the trees will make you earn it. But that's part yeah, of the absolutely. fun. You take the, are, what are you doing for the bow class? Are you doing whitewood? Yes. And the okay. reason I've chosen, the reason I've chosen to do whitewoods for the classes is because 
that way people can can sort of explore a bow design that's going to be applicable to them in their local regions like not every like basically nobody has access to you or osage unless they buy it and if they buy it it's good if they buy it it's expensive and if they cut it themselves they're going to have to cut several trees to find you know osage or you that's even even a fraction of as you know as clean as a your average everyday whitewood tree so i really want to try to introduce people to the bow woods that grow right in their backyard and so that's why i've chosen to do white woods we do a design that sort of i mean it, it basically applies to to most whitewood tree species with the exception that you know if it's a really soft wood maybe you make it just a little bit wider and a little bit longer and maybe if it's a little bit denser wood you could shrink it up just a touch but the general dimensions we use in the class are kind of for like a just a smooth shooting low string angle reliable low stress design that still performs well enough to to more to be more than efficient enough to kill any large game in north america so i'm just trying to open up the craft to as many people as possible and 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 allow them to use woods that they have ready access to and i'm guessing that near the handle that's going to be a little bit wider than an osage stave you're going to cut that a little bit wider near the handle yeah i mean they call it the fade outs or whatever the the widest portion of the limb yeah with a as a general rule of thumb the less dense the wood becomes the wider you have to make it so osage can be a solid you know 50 percent narrower than other bow woods right yeah i got so for everybody watching i actually got a stave from Corey. Corey goes through a bunch of osage and the way i understand it and the way when i started i started with white wood when I was building my first one because I heard not to buy Osage online because the nature of Osage, any of you guys who have those green monkey balls in your yard, that's Osage. And you know that the trees kind of, they look like this, they're kind of funky. And so online, you don't really know what you're getting. Uh, So that's why I bought mine from Corey. Corey's got uh, kind of a selection of pieces that he ends up not working. And then he sold off at a discounted price for um, poor people like me. And I, <laughs> then I, I, I shape it into my, my makeshift bow. Definitely not the same level of craftsmanship, but uh, a, good, a good college try. Did you, uh, did you end up tillering that, that uh, bow blank out? Have you, or you got it set aside at a certain stage right now? Or? No, it, it was just uh, sitting down there. We've been busy. So I started floor tillering yesterday. Just... Uh, kind of mass removal right now um i'm gonna so i live kind of on the road i just got a scrap piece of two by four i'm gonna cut out a tillering tree if you will i'm gonna cut out a makeshift tillering tree and i'll tiller it soon um but yeah i started doing some mass removal just checking that out carving in some rough knock points just to get it strung up and, and give it a look yeah it's a cool piece it's got this huge knot at the top it's kind of like a that i think that's gonna be my top limb it looks like it's like eye level it's weird so like when nice. you're pulling you'll be like looking kind of at the eye i don't know cool that'll have some yeah. cool char- character when you get it done yeah it'll have a lot of character to it for sure it's a cool piece so uh did you end up selling all those all those uh all those ones that you were you were kind yeah. of selling secondhand yeah, a lot of people ask me about bow blanks or bow staves, and it, it's so hard for me to keep myself stocked with bow wood that I, I very rarely have anything available. 
And uh, sometimes I'll I'll get bow blanks roughed out throughout the year. And maybe just at that time, I'm, I'm too pressed for time to deal with something with a little extra character, or maybe it just has some, some feature that I just don't feel like navigating at that time, or that is not a, or that's not a good application for whatever bow I've selected it for. Like maybe the bow that I'm working at that time is just too heavy of a weight for me to trust the stave that I've chosen or, or, vice versa maybe it's too light of a weight and i'd like rather have a cleaner stave than one with characters so that it has less mass to propel forward so it just sort of over the years i just started to accumulate these blanks that i kind of put off and put off and put off and and people were asking me over and over if i ever sold blanks or staves and finally i'm like you know what i'll just i'm going to take my whole blank pile that i've been sort of just looking at for the last year and and sell them off at a discounted price and they, they went within the first 24 hours. People just bought them up. And there's actually been people sending me pictures of their finished bows. And it's really awesome. There's been, I think, three or four people already that have sent me photos of the bows that they made out of those blanks. And they turned out great. So super pumped oh, about that. I'm behind the curve then. I need, to get, I need to get my ass in motion. <laughs> so Ed Bushcraft just had a great uh, question. He said, do you still have the, the first bow you made? No, because the first bow that I ever made broke. Nah. Yeah, it was a it was a hickory board bow, and it broke at the handle. So um, my younger brother has the second bow that I ever made. It's a hickory board bow that pulls sixty pounds at twenty eight inches, nice. and he's been yeah he's been beating the daylights out of that thing for the last seven years, and it's still going strong. Hell yeah! It's just it was, you it, said it was a board bow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's terribly ugly. I didn't. I didn't know anything about design or performance. It's got these huge square, like way overbuilt limb tips on it, but uh, it still shoots just fine. It's it kicks like a mule, but my brother loves it. So whatever, man. If it works, yeah. it works. He's uh he's gotten a more upgraded version since then, but he still takes that that first hickory bow that I or that second hickory bow that I ever made. He still takes it out on a regular basis and slings some arrows with it. That's what it's all about, man. It's just getting out there with the the old school stuff and, and seeing what you can do with it. I think it, the hickory bow thing is, I love that idea because it's so accessible. It's like yeah. anybody can get out there, go to Home Depot or whatever lumber yard around them, get a plank of hickory and draw out a design and make it how you want it. You know, it's a very accessible thing. You don't have to have a bunch of fancy equipment. No, that's one of the benefits about starting with a board bow is you, I mean, there's multiple benefits. You get, uh, you get dimensional lumber that you can start from. So there's no chase in a ring. Right. I mean, you have, you need to do a little bit of background research to learn what kind of like grain orientation a board should have so that it makes a sturdy bow. But uh, once you've got a board with good grain, you've got a nice flat back there that you can draw a profile onto. Yep. Just glue a quick handle riser onto it. It's going to give you a nice flat subject to work your early tillering skills on because it, it, it takes some some practice and some skill and some broken bows to learn how to tiller a stave uh, one with branches and knots and wiggles so if you can start with a board bow that are a board that only costs you you know five to eight dollars at the hardware store and get a shooting bow out of it and, and really kind of cut your teeth on the tillering process with uh with board bows i mean it's just a, it's a win-win and there's no doubt that a board bow will make a, a very high performance bow, one that is equal to any other any other self bow. I believe uh, in the traditional Bowyer's Bible book series, I want to say maybe it's in volume four, they talk about design and performance. And I think the uh, 
the most, the highest performing bow that any of those bowyers from the traditional bowyers Bible series ever made was a hickory board bow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've got a, uh, I've got volume one, and I, I hug that thing. And <laughs> I, I swear to God, I've read the Osage part. Like even before I built Osage, I just dreamt about Osage. I don't know why. It was just like the wood I wanted to, to learn on. And I think I read that chapter like 14 times. It's only like 10 pages, but I think I yeah. read it 14 times. Yeah, for anybody that's looking to get started, pick up a couple of the books that are out there. It's just, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah. Just the resources are out there, you know what I mean? You can, you can watch all, there's tons of videos, there's tons of books. And then if you want to take if you want to take a few years off the learning curve, because it doesn't matter how many books you read or how many videos you watch, when you actually get tools on wood with a real stave, I mean, it's going to seem like rocket science. So it takes just practice. It takes broken bows. It takes, you know, experience. So if you want to take a few more years off the learning curve, you can always, I mean, I, I truly believe that classes with professionals shave so much time off the learning curve and that applies to anything, you know, yeah, I think, I I think you're being modest. I think if you want to be good, you got to learn from somebody like you. That's really what it comes down to, is if, if this is something you're passionate about. It's like, I, I think the opportunity that you're giving people, I saw the, the post you gave to those people uh, or with the, the other folks in, in your bow building class. It's like they built kick-ass bows in three days. And like those guys yeah. are going to be like legends now. They're going to be addicted and just build both <laughs> you know Hopefully. this isn't a one-off thing they just learn from the master and they're about to be legit bowyers i i hope that's what happens i would like to uh i'd like people to leave with you know at least the a base level of knowledge just so that they can craft bows for the rest of their lives that's the goal anyway it's gonna once you get home you know you're 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 gonna what taking a class would do with a bowyer is just give you a higher rate of early success. Like you, you, you have someone who's maybe built several hundred bows who's watching over your shoulder and they can guide you through and be like, okay, you know, here's where you're making a mistake. This is why we do this. This is why we do that. And you don't have to figure it all out by yourself. So you just get a little bit higher of an early success rate and uh, you leave, you know, your first experience with a, with a high performance bow versus maybe, maybe you get some surviving bows, but I know definitely like my first, my first 10 or 20 bows were definitely nothing to write home about. They were, you know, shocky and heavy and overbuilt. And I just, I was nervous. I didn't really understand, you know, how far I could push it or, or where mass needed to be removed to like make them perform the best or, or really how the process worked even though I had spent years reading every book and watching every video, it just didn't make any sense to me when I actually put tools on wood. So you can get there in a multi, in a bunch of different ways, but uh, taking a class with a professional can definitely shave off a bunch of time. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's something that everyone would enjoy. Actually, it's a funny story. I was out on a run today, met another uh, lady who had a dog, got to talking. She said that, she just started shooting traditional. She doesn't hunt, not interested in killing animals. Her husband does hunting and, and kills animals, but she loves shooting the bow. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't matter if you never plan on shooting an animal in your life. Shooting a traditional bow is just a great time. It's just the whole experience is just sick. It's like you can't not have fun doing it. 
exactly. It's like meditation in motion. It's yeah. uh, it's a it's a very zen experience. You kind of get this you get this uh, uh, this thing where like this weapon becomes an extension of your body and you're connected to it and it's made of natural materials and it's it's just uh, it's very zen. It's just kind of like a like a spiritual practice almost. And a lot of cultures did use archery as a spiritual practice or as a you know a, a disciplinary practice or a meditation practice. So it definitely has applications. I mean, you can you can have just as much fun shooting stumps and dirt clods and leaves and targets for the rest of your life and never killing an animal. So, right. Yeah, no, I, I think, and uh, the, also the process of seeing it as a stave, which for folks not as familiar is just one section of the tree that's cut out and planned to turn into a bow. So it looks just like a small tree and then through the process, it becomes this intricate and very specific weapon that, you know, involves time and technique. And you, you kind of form this bond with your bow. A lot of people name their bows and it becomes yeah. kind of this relationship where there's a give and take. You have to be careful with how far you push it. And, and there's a lot of, you know, feedback from the bow back to you, right? And you'll feel it in your hands. It's a very... I don't know. It's a very interesting process getting to know a, a traditional bow, especially versus like shooting a recurve where you're just ripping it back and there's a wheel and it just sends a dart. It's a very different, more holistic experience, in my opinion, at least. I, you know, I kind of, uh, I believe in like the, the, the spiritual connection to the trees and the, and the earth and the, the, the sort of oneness of all things. And when you take this living tree, you know, that's part of our ecosystem and part of us and part of everything else, and you cut it down and it's it's sacrificed its life to become, you know, this weapon that's going to become an extension of you. It's it's really kind of, uh, yeah, man, it's kind of like a spiritual connection to that weapon. It becomes your companion. It becomes something that you rely on and trust and it feeds you and it, uh, yeah, it gives you feedback. It tells you, you know, what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and it makes you it's like the ultimate teacher, you know, it's a spiritual teacher because when the, the archer makes a mistake, the only place that he can look is inside of himself. So, right. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, man, it's a little bit woo woo, but, uh, I'm big into the spiritual connection to the living, to the bow made of the living tree. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. I think it, it sounds woo woo until you do it, you know, like when, when you see someone like you with all this experience of transforming wood, into usable weapons that bring people food and sustenance and animals and happiness and joy. It's a lot less woo woo than, yeah. right? It's, it's pretty much just what it is. It's you're taking a piece of wood and crafting it into something really special. Yeah. That first time people fire an arrow out of a bow that they made with their own two hands and it launches that thing out of there like a laser beam They're their hook, man. That's that, that's the ultimate connection. They build that bond right then. I remember seeing uh, Adams, Adam Cavanaugh had been shooting a, a recurve in his videos. And then I remember him doing like a unboxing of your bow and he pulls it out. He's like in the Australian outback and he's like gets a couple <laughs> darts and he's like, this thing is sick. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah. He's just so hyped. It was awesome. Adam's bow was really cool, man. That was a really clean piece of Osage and it had some of the craziest red color. I've never seen anything like it. It, it looked metallic in the sunlight. It was just glistening and moving and it had this crazy looking grain structure to it. So 
I, I was that's, really pumped that, that he enjoyed it. That's one of the coolest things about Osage is that color, man. It's just like naturally just eye popping. You see the wood and you're like, is that treated wood? No, that is, that is yeah. what the wood looks like. And the tannins in the wood darken as it's exposed to UV light. So, you know, you get this, you get this bow right out of the, you know, right out of the tree that's just like laser yellow. And then within the first year, it's got a nice tan. And then within the next year, you know, it just keeps it darker and darker. And within two or three years, it's got this deep brown patina that's just like, it's like looking into the ocean. It's really cool. It just goes way down into the wood. And yeah, it just gets dark. It just gets darker and darker with age. I mean... Uh, you know, a, a six, seven, eight-year-old Osage bow is, is a deep, dark chocolate brown. Really cool looking. Right. Yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting process. It's almost like uh, like oxidation of browns or of bronze, or how red rocks get their color. It's like nature has its way of of changing and morphing the color of something. You think you know it well. And then you come back and you've set it in your closet for, you know, six months and you pull it back out and it's a completely different looking bow. You're yeah. Like, what? what is going on? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a interesting thing, man. Well, uh, Corey, I've uh, appreciated talking with you, man, as always. Uh, hopefully we get a chance to do a couple uh, more trips this year and, and definitely welcome to come out to the Rockies. We'll get some hunting in, but I want to say thank you so much for uh coming and speaking with me it's been a great time i know i've enjoyed it everyone else has as well and you my friend uh you're definitely wild <laughs> thanks brother yeah i come out of the rockies all the time so uh i'll hit up you and donnie next time i'm out there and thanks for having me on man appreciate it yeah been... definitely i look forward to it we'll, we'll get out there and uh we'll do some hunting and maybe by that time i'll be able to show you my bow sweet all great right, talk man. brother i'm gonna hit the road yeah. i got about two be more hours safe. to get to my hotel <laughs> All right, man. Be safe on the road. See you later. See you, Ryan. Peace. Later.